The word that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, for the house of the God of Jacob, that, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you'll be aware that it contains a number of prophetic books. So books that include, are included like Jonah or Amos or Jeremiah or Nahum, and then the book that we just read from, from Isaiah. And we call these books prophetic books because these books contain various prophecies or events that are associated with the lives of the prophets. And if you're not familiar with the term prophet, we're not talking about like a fortune teller or kind of a you know, person you go to for wisdom, but prophets were individuals who God spoke to in a specific way in order to give his messages to his people. So we think of them as a messenger. So what that means is that these prophets had a direct connection to God that was unique in the sense that other people didn't have that same sort of connection as the prophets did. Now, we're very quick to say, like, wow, that's amazing. You know, these people are hearing directly from God. They're hearing his voice speak to them. Because, I mean, how many of us here have at one point or another wished to have God speak to us in a very tangible way? Or to hear the voice of God directly speaking to us? Or to have, like, this kind of prophetic vision when you, you wake up, like, oh, man, like, now I know exactly what to do with my life at this point. I think all of us would wish that, have wished something like that along at some point in our lives. And I think it's very easy for us to kind of get jealous of these guys. We're like, man, if, I, if, if God spoke to me in the same way he spoke to a prophet, I would follow him no problem. It would be super easy. Um, you know, his life would go smoothly. But I think we need to be, before we get too jealous, we need to be very cautious and aware of what these prophets were actually called to do that they weren't getting messages for just their own personal lives, but they were being given messages that were for the people. They were, God was sending his prophet to give this message to the people of God. And very rarely were these messages full of sunshine and rainbows and ponies and bunnies. Often they were the opposite. These prophets spent a lot of time giving messages about impending judgment, about the wrath of God that was coming due to his people's rebellion. The the prophets were instructed to tell the people, or call the people to repentance, otherwise judgment would come. You know, parents, prophets were supposed to be the bad guy every time. Like, "Ah, who's, you know, draw straws for who's going to have to go and tell the kids not to do that? The prophet was always the one that got the short straw. And as you would expect... These prophets, when they told the people these messages, more often than not, the people did not respond in a very nice way. 
For example, the prophet Jeremiah has become known as the, the weeping prophet, partially because of the messages he was told to give, but also the fact that the people treated him horribly. In one case, he was actually thrown to a cistern after he gave them God's message. So the life of a prophet wasn't all this joy and love all the time. But we do have to say the life of a prophet wasn't all gloom and doom. Not every message that they received from God was a message of judgment or wrath or the horrible things to come. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, for example, is a message that God gave to Isaiah, his prophet, which provided peace and comfort and the sign of a glorious future. Our verse 1 says that God, or Isaiah saw. He was given a magnificent image, a picture that I'm sure firmly got lodged in his mind for years and years and years and for his whole life. A picture that helped sustain him at times when the people just refused to listen. Or like when in chapter 37, when the Assyrian army is sieging Jerusalem, that there is no hope for the, the Judah, people of Judah to conquer this great enemy. This picture stood in Jeremiah, or Isaiah's mind. This image sustained him when he felt burnt out and he was ready to give up. How many of us this morning could use that sort of image where we feel tired and broken and burnt out? This morning, we're going to spend a little time talking about this picture that Isaiah saw. Because this picture, this vision, isn't something that just applies to a moment back in, the t- back in Isaiah's day in history. But because this passage teaches us about the kingdom of God. A kingdom that's not restricted to a certain landmass or region. A kingdom that's not marked by corruption, but by righteousness. A kingdom that has no end and it will never pass away. So what I want to do this morning, I want to present this morning's takeaway truth at the start to kind of guide our discussion. So my nap takers can rejoice, and you can thank me after the service when you wake up. So our takeaway truth this morning, God's kingdom is not reliant on us, but God invites us to be a part of it. So when when we do middle school youth group, I have to repeat myself like seven times, so I'm going to repeat myself at least once. God's kingdom is not reliant on us, but God invites us to be a part of it. So let's be people of the word this morning. So starting in the beginning of verse 1, verse 1 sets the stage for our passage. right? It starts that the word, and we understand the word to mean the word of God, the word of the Lord. And it was given to our prophets, in this case it was Isaiah, who was the son of Amos. But there's interesting, it says that Isaiah saw it. Not that he heard it, not that he like, read it, he saw it. This was a visual word. And this word was concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now Judah, with its capital Jerusalem, was the nation of God. Right? They were the descendants of Abraham, who God had many years beforehand promised that he would make into a great nation with descendants as, great, or as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And it was out of the tribe of Judah that the great King David came. And God, if in going kind of moving forward in history, in chapter or Second Samuel chapter seven, verse sixteen, God made a covenant with David concerning some great thing. Verse sixteen: And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure 
be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I really want to make sure if you're a note taker, make a, make a note of this reference because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. So 2 Samuel 7.16. The word that Isaiah received in, this, in, in chapter 2 was directed to the nation of Judah to, in, in Isaiah's day. But as 21st century Christians, we recognize that if we have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, then we too are a people of God. We are part of the people of God. Not through biological bloodlines or family tree, but through the blood of Jesus Christ who died for us. So this word of God that was spoken to Isaiah many years ago was for those people. But it's also for all the people of God, and that does include us. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what, and I'm sure you guys are like, get on with it. So Isaiah was like, what did Isaiah see? What was that image, that picture that was sustaining him and upholding him for so many years? We find in verse 2. Verse 2 says, we, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up over the hills. Isaiah was witnessing the establishment of the kingdom of God. In the latter days, God is going to establish his kingdom above everything. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to understand that this doesn't mean that God wasn't sovereignly reigning during the days of Isaiah. This does not mean that God was simply kind of biding his time, letting the nations kind of fight against themselves, destroy themselves so that he could swoop in for global domination. God is fully in control of the universe, and he's always been. And we need to understand that if God gave up control of the universe for even a half second, then the universe would fall into absolute chaos. Right, in, kind of, in Christian doctrine, we call that kind of common grace. God is upholding the universe in a certain way. Yes, sin does exist, but he's upholding it so that he's not letting it just fall into absolute ruin and chaos all the time. So God is in control of the universe. But in Scripture also teaches us that God is actually the one that sets up rulers and authorities. Which means that no one in history has ever become a king or a governor, or a middle school principal, or a city council member, or even a kindergarten line leader without the sovereign work of God. This can be hard to understand at times when people are elected or chosen who seem to be just completely antagonistic to God and his ways and his people. I mean, some years we just look at the election results and we wonder, how could these outcomes possibly be part of the work of God? But remember that God's kingdom is not reliant on us. His kingdom will not rise or it will not fall based on our efforts or our, our votes even. He uses all sorts of means and all sorts of people for his sovereign purposes. And our job is to put our faith in God that he will do what he has promised he will do and then we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Our job is not to build up the kingdom of heaven so that God can finally come in, but our job is to follow him, to have faith that he's going to do what he's going to do and obey the Spirit's leading in our lives. So we need to have that kind of that groundwork right there. We need to understand that this establishment spoken in verse 2 is not talking about you know, God kind of taking over finally. But what instead is being pictured here is a picture of the end times. It talks about the end of the world which will take place when God has completed all of his work according to his sovereign plan. And at that time, the city and the kingdom of God will be fully revealed. One passage, that, or one passage that can help us better understand what's going on here can be found in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. And he carried them, me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Can you see the similarities to the, for Revelation 21 to Isaiah chapter 2? We see on that great final day, the city of God, that greater Jerusalem, will be placed on that great mountain. It will be higher than all other places, shining like a jewel, and God will be sitting on the throne. This city cannot be shaken. It can't be moved. Because it's been established by God himself. And he will be enthroned there forever. So what we ask ourselves, though, is like, so that, we're like, that sounds amazing. Oh, that sounds wonderful. How can we have confidence in that? How can we know that that's what's going to pass? Well, that's why we go back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. And God's covenant with David. God told David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. But that seems like a strange promise when we consider that the, the nation of Judah would eventually be destroyed and conquered by the Babylonian army. It's like, how can, we, how can you say that David's going to reign forever when his kingdom doesn't even exist in the same way? But the throne that God was talking about was so much greater than a throne set in a palace in the Middle East. God was speaking of the throne that was mentioned in Isaiah 2 and Revelation 21, which would be fulfilled by David's descendant, Jesus. This descendant, Jesus, who is God himself, who saw his people's great need for salvation, he saw our great debt of sin that we have no possible way of paying off. He saw that there's no way that we could conquer sin or death. So he took on human flesh. He became fully man while, staying, while remaining God in order to live a perfect life of obedience and righteousness. And then he willingly went to the cross to die in order to pay the blood price that was owed for our sins, to pay the debt that we could not. Friends, the God of the universe, we could say the king of the universe, the master of the stars and the seas, the maker and sustainer of all of life, has died so that we can live. Many of us have heard that message countless times. But this morning and this afternoon as you go home, I really want us to, to think about 
how significant it is that Jesus died for us. He died for me. He died for you. Because we must never let the good news of Jesus Christ become mundane or ordinary to us. Because it is far from ordinary. And it's even more extraordinary because death could not hold Jesus. Because on that third day, after being crucified, on that Sunday morning, the women went and they found an empty tomb. And the angel said to them, I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, but has risen as he said. Jesus went from the tomb to the throne. And God's covenant with David became fully realized at that moment. And in the latter days, on the last day, that throne will be established on the mountain. And that, this image of this enthroned Lord that Isaiah saw so many years ago will not just be part of his vision, but every man, every woman, every child will bear witness to it. Because the king will be on his throne. So the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, how will we respond to this coming king? What will our heart of hearts confess about this king, this Jesus? Because the scriptures make it clear that everyone will have to make an account, either on that final day as spoken in Isaiah 2 or the day that we die. The God who created the universe, who sustains the universe, and everything in it, it's not simply the God of the Christians. He is the God of everything and everyone. So consider right now this question. Who is this king? And who, how will I respond when I come face to face with him? If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, or you're not quite sure where you stand before this holy God, I would just encourage you to look to Jesus. To see this coming king and consider what the scriptures teach about him. To see that he is a king who physically died for his rebellious people. To see that he never forsakes or abandons those who belong to him. To understand that he has a plan for our lives. And that there's not a moment in our day that God doesn't care about what's happening. That God can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has endured great trials and afflictions himself. We follow leaders who have done very little for us. Friend, let today be the day when you start serving the king who, who has done more for us than we can even imagine. This passage... You know, spends a lot of time talking about this theme of looking to the latter days, to the, the days to come. But it also, it's not simply future-focused. Right? This passage also calls us to daily and godly living as well. We start to see that in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord. Now before you guys get antsy, I'm not going to ask us to put our hiking boots on, uh, this week at least. But Jerry and I will probably talk about in a couple weeks when we go back to Joshua and there's the time where they're walking around Jericho, we might ask you to put some hiking boots on, but that's, that's a staff discussion later. Now, so for, for us here in Florida, 
where our mountains are composed of garbage, it it seems kind of strange to think about going up a mountain. And I'm pretty sure that if, you know, one day the building committee just said, you know what, like, we're going to kind of forget about the lot over there, and we're going to try to find a, a trash mountain to be more biblical to build on, um, I'm pretty sure our attendance would drop drastically. But for the Israelites in their day, this rhetoric of going up the mountain made perfect sense. The house of the Lord on a mountain was not simply a glimpse into the future, but it was their current situation. Because the city of Jerusalem was, and still is, located up on a plateau, which was roughly 3,800 feet above the city, or above the Dead Sea, I'm sorry. Now, so that meant that if you did not live in the city, then you almost certainly lived lower than the city, which meant when it was time to go up to the temple of the, in the city, you were to go up to the mountain of the Lord, up to the house of God in a very literal way. So what we have to ask ourselves is, what does this verse have to teach us flatlanders? Now, I think there's, I'm Presbyterian, so there's three things, obviously. But first, we are called to worship God. When we consider the work of God, when we recognize how he has created us, how he sustains us, and how he has saved us from ourselves, worship is the only reasonable response. So we have to ask ourselves, what is worship? Uh, there's a pastor, his name is Brian Chapel. Some of you guys may, for, may be familiar with him. He's a fantastic definition in his book called Christ-Centered Worship. And he actually says that worship is a representation of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus. Christ-centered worship is not just talking or singing about Jesus a lot. Christ-centered worship reflects the contours of the gospel. In the individual life of a believer, the gospel progresses through the recognition of the greatness and goodness of God, the acknowledgement of our sin and our need for grace, assurance of God's forgiveness through Christ, thankful acknowledgement of God's blessing, desire for, desire for greater knowledge of Him through His Word, grateful obedience in response to His grace, and a life devoted to His purposes with assurance of His blessing very long definition, and I'll summarize it. True worship includes recognizing who God is, acknowledging our own sins, receiving this assurance of pardon that God gives us, telling us we're forgiven. We're thanking Him for all that He's done. We're learning more about Him through the study of His Word and following Him. I'm thankful to be part of a worshiping church. So as a church, let's continue to be intentional in our worship. So when we sing, let our singing be loud and may be proud. Ideally on key too, though. Let our times of confession be genuine genuine and convicting. May we rejoice every week at the gift of salvation. May we be like the Bereans and be people of the word. And let our worship on Sunday morning propel us out as we go so the other six days of the week are marked by worship and obedience to our Lord. So verse 3 calls us to worship. Second, we're called to invite. Now, if you're following along in the verse, you notice that there's, this verse wasn't addressed to an individual, but to a community. It said, come, let us go up to the mountain. We need, each, we need one another. We need each other. We need each other for accountability. We need to support one another, to spur one each other on, to share in the joys and to comfort in the times of hardship. 
Sometimes we need to act like a prophet to our friends as well, showing them the error of their ways. And when the church functions as it's intended, is unlike any other group or organization in the world because it unites people from all different walks of life. It serves as a place of relief and comfort and joy and love for people, all because the church is reflecting the love and beauty of Jesus Christ himself. So again, thinking back to the Israelites in Isaiah's day, we can almost hear the joy in their voices as they're going up to the mountain and to the Temple Mount. We can almost feel their excitement as they make their way up. And we, can, and we know that they're excited because they're inviting other people to go with them. We don't generally invite people to things we don't really enjoy ourselves. For example, I've never to this day been invited to an outing to the DMV. But before you start making invitation cards for me, I probably will reject that offer. But friends, we have the opportunity to invite others to hear the good news of Jesus. To invite others to learn about the freedom that comes through life in Christ. To bring along others to experience biblical community. What a privilege that is. To tell other people about the kingdom of God that we have been welcomed into. And so can they. With Christmas coming up and you know, all this talk of the mountain, I'm sure I'm not alone in having go tell it on the mountain kind of cone through your head at least once. You know, the chorus is familiar to many of you. It says, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain. Can you guys fill in the blank? That Jesus Christ, that's pretty good. That Jesus Christ is born. I wish it was a little more musical, but that's fine. This year, let's actually live out those words. Let's climb up those Florida trash piles and proclaim that Jesus Christ, the God-man, was born, and he is Lord, so that other people may hear and they may know. Third, verse 3 calls us to learn. We're called to, we're called to ascend the hill of the Lord. We're supposed to go and worship. We're supposed to invite others to go with us. But what actually happens once we've sought, sought out the Lord? Well, this passage teaches we're meant to learn. Now, as, as we've already discussed, this passage contains messages about the future, but it also deals with the present. Now, this learning in the future is to mean that on the day that we enter heaven's gates, that will be the day when our faith goes to sight that we will be able to sit at the physical feet of Jesus and to hear his voice. But before that day arrives for each of us, we are called to live out our days building our faith, to be seeking understanding, to learn more about, more about God and everything that he has made. We are never meant to settle or to be complacent but should be seekingly, or actively seeking to grow in our knowledge of him. However, this learning process is not a self-taught course. The Holy Spirit, who is our advocate and our helper, is also our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us his ways. He teaches us what it means to walk in godliness 
And he enables and he equips us to live in that manner. You know, this past week I, I came across a video that was discussing some of the issues associated with the school systems in America today. And one of the main issues that the people interviewed were, they were saying was that this, this, such a shortage of teachers, kind of historic shortages. And they were saying that even the substitute pools are almost non-existent in some areas. And they, say, they were saying the situation is so bad in some school districts that kids will walk into a classroom there, and there won't be a teacher, there won't be a substitute, and there won't even be a plan in place for them. It was a troubling video, to say the least. And it was heartbreaking just to hear the different stories of these educators talking about how, you know, how tired they are and how bad the situation truly is. Now, we need to be praying for our teachers and our schools for sure in times like this. And I think as a church, we've got to start thinking, too, how can we assist the, the schools as they're raising up these next generation. I know that we have many teachers and school staff and administrators in this room, and we just want to make sure as a church that we tell you that we care about you, we love you, and if there's something we can do, please let us know. We would love to serve you in that way. But praise God that in the kingdom of God, when we come to learn, we don't come to an empty classroom. But instead, we enter and we are taught by God himself. The teacher who tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts, and that his ways are not our ways. Because his ways are so much greater than ours. Our scripture tells us that his ways bring resolution between nations. His ways turn swords into plows. His ways turn spears and tools to prune the trees. His ways turn machine guns into staplers. In a world full of problems that we cause, we don't need more of the same. Instead, we need men and women to reject the faulty plans and ways of this world and to cling to the perfect way of God, to be seeking the will of God. We're going to move to our last verse in our passage, verse 5. Said, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Our passage this morning ends, or ends with a very similar call as to what we heard in verse 3. But we can see that there's been a shift being made. In verse 3, it said, the, the people said, Let us go up to the house of Jacob. But in verse 5, it says, The, the people are referred to as the, peop- as the house of Jacob. This wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a scribal error. This was intentional. And what that tells us is that if you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that God dwells in you in a very real way. In the days of Isaiah, the temple was sat in stone on the Temple Mount, but today the temple is mobile and it's all across the world. Do you understand the significance of that? It means that every time we enter a coffee shop or a classroom or city hall, a temple of the Holy Spirit is temporarily set up in that location. And others will have the opportunity to experience Christ when they speak to us or deal with us or interact with us. That's why Isaiah exhorts us to walk in the light of the Lord. Because non-believers need Christ. They need his light. They don't need ours. It is the light of Christ that will expose their sin. 
And it's his light that will reveal the way of salvation. But walking in the light doesn't simply affect the way that we evangelize or the way that we witness to other people. Walking in the light has implications for every aspect of our lives. Walking in the light affects the way that we parent. It impacts the way that we treat our neighbors. It impacts the way we work, the way we use our finances. We could go on and on as to the way the light affects our lives. But I did want to give one more example. Walking in the light is what will sustain us as we eagerly and anxiously await those latter days when Christ will return or when he calls us home. We live in dark times, and it seems like it's getting darker, or it feels like that at least. But Christ is still the king, and nothing can change that, and someday we will see him face to face. I want to end our time this morning with lyrics from a song that's fairly new. Uh, it's called On That Day, and it's by a group I love called City of Light. They're a group out of Australia. They write fantastic worship songs. Paxson's sang a couple of songs here. But they, they wrote this song called On That Day. And this song helps us reflect on that final day, either when Jesus returns or when he calls us home. And it talks about the absolute joy that that day will bring. So regarding that last day, Hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you, my joy is complete. As I run into your arms open wide, I will see my Father who is waiting for me. And the song repeats, so I need to repeat as well, because I love that line. Hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you, my joy is complete. As I run into your arms open wide, I will see my Father who is waiting for me. Friends, we are someday going to be face-to-face -face before the king. But he's so much more than that. He's our father who loves us and cares for us. He's our savior who's died for us. And someday he will be welcoming us with open arms. So this week as we leave this place, let's really be conscious of our status before this king, before the savior. And let's make sure that we're worshiping him and inviting other people to do the same. Let's pray. Father God, our King, we look forward to that day. You know, we just entered the season of Advent where we think about your birth and how for so many years you know, the people were awaiting anxiously and eagerly the, the coming of the Messiah. And we... And, you know, 2,000 years later, we also are asking for this Messiah to return, to make, things, to make everything right, to set his throne upon the mountain, and to give us, just, to show us, um, just to show us your face, Lord. Help us as we continue worship and do, us, do us all for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.